So uh, the other day I went fishing and um, it was raining the whole entire time. And uh, I don't know, I mean, how many of you like rain? Uh, just curiosity, just like you, if you, if you like it. Yeah. Anybody else is like this one too now? <laughs> okay, there's a few of us. And I have this really weird relationship with rain because part of me loves it when it rains because generally speaking, the type of fly fishing I enjoy, which is steelheading, is generally like something that rain helps that process. I like rain. But the other end of that spectrum is rain is miserable to sit in for eight or nine hours, right? I mean, like, and, and what happens oftentimes is you might have your rain jacket, but once a little bit of rain gets behind the rain jacket, it is downhill from there, right? Like everything just starts soaking it up, you're freezing cold, and you're just wondering why you even do it. And, uh, and so I was out fishing the other day, and, and I, was, I was thinking about how I used to like rain a lot, and now I'm just kind of like, I've turned into maybe I've been acclimated to California because I'm like 75 and sunny is really nice, isn't it? It's like it's really a great, enjoyable time. And uh, I, but I was thinking about it as a kid, we went camping a lot. Like that was what our, our family did for fun. We didn't have a lot of money, and so we lived in Alaska, grew up in Alaska. And in Alaska, what you did for fun was that you went camping. Uh, you might go snowmobiling. You might go hunting. You might go fishing. That was pretty much it. And then playing hockey um, 12 months out of the year. Uh, but I remember this one time we went fish, we went camping, uh, and it was, I was probably seven or eight years old, went to this place, um, it's about an hour and a half away from, maybe an hour away from Anchorage, called Portage Glacier. If you've ever been up to Anchorage, you might know this is one of the places you can go and visit. And back in the day, you used to be able to, like, drive right up to this massive glacier, get out, and you could sled on this glacier and do all these really cool things. And they had a little, like, discovery welcome center, and you could watch these videos, and I found out when I was eight years old that there actually are ice worms. They really exist. And I was like, yeah, I thought that was a big joke, that there are ice worms. And it's really great. We went, we went camping this one time, and we got there on a Monday, and it was raining. And so we set up everything. And then for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, it rained nonstop the entire time. And by the end of the trip, like, everything you own is absolutely soaked. Absolutely soaked. It's like the most miserable thing ever. And we just we sat under this tarp the whole time, like, playing games. And just, I, as a kid, I was like, this is dumb. Why are we staying here? But, you know, I guess that's what Alaskans do. They just go camping. And if it's raining, that's just part of the fun. Um, but because of that, I, like, I started to develop this, like, I don't know, opinion on camping, that I, if it was going to be raining or snowing, it's probably not going to be very fun, okay? And that's why I think it's great living in Northern California, because we can go camping and avoid some of those things, can't we? Instead, we get to go camping when it's 125 degrees. It's beautiful, isn't it? But I, I do love camping, and, you know, I'm bringing that up because in some ways, we're camping this, this month, the month of January. We're camping out in John chapter 4, and we've started this sermon series called Engage. And what we're wrestling with and thinking about is how we can engage more with Jesus' kingdom. Like every single person in this room is at a different place, different, different part of their journey with God. And you're all hopefully wrestling with how you can engage and live a life following Jesus. And so we're camping here a little bit in this text because John chapter 4 has a lot going on. In fact, it's one of the most popular passages in the Gospel of John. There have been, I mean, probably thousands upon thousands of books just written on this chapter. 
And so what we're doing is we're going to spend some time and we're just kind of unpacking it slowly and we're going we're gonna to kind of hang out and let it marinate and let it just kind of, I don't know, kind of soak into our, our hearts and our, our minds a little bit on how we can engage more with the kingdom of God. And so what I want to do is I want to read from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 19, and then just spend a little bit of time kind of poking into this a little bit and, and camping a bit and thinking about how this text can really challenge us a tad bit more. So this is what we read in John chapter 4, starting once again in verse 1. We read, Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoy? Jesus replied, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be Again, Holy Spirit, we are asking you for your guidance and for, for your power and your presence and for you to awaken inside of our hearts more of a desire to engage with you and your kingdom. And so I pray that you would speak to us, encourage us, comfort us, that you would bring conviction that you would provoke us to see Jesus for who he truly is. We pray this in your name. You know, this passage is is really fascinating to me because um, there's a lot we can really miss in this passage as we're reading it. And part of that is because of the distance that exists in 2022 versus the beginning of the, the, the days of Jesus. I mean, when we talk about the 
the days of Jesus, we find out about Jesus' life in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we have about 2,000 years that separates us. There's a distance from the world we live in and the world that they lived in. Not to mention the distance that exists in the Old Testament. We're talking about thousands of years. And so oftentimes when we read this text as an American or as a, a whatever you are, as we read this text, oftentimes we miss these little things that really highlight what is actually going on in this, this passage of Scripture. And, and that's what I want to do this morning is just spend a little time thinking about this text through Middle Eastern eyes, like what actually is happening here. And what stands out to me is this. As we think about this story, um, we need to realize that the Samaritan woman, she comes to Jesus. She hears Jesus' words and his message. She believes in him. So she comes to him. She hears what he's saying. She believes in who he is. And then she becomes the first woman preacher in Christian history. She goes from here and starts preaching the gospel. And so I wanted to summarize the story. So here's the deal. Um, John chapter 3, the previous chapter, there's a leading uh, Pharisee named Nicodemus who comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. And so rather than in the middle of the day, he, he comes at nighttime to be secretive, and he's asking Jesus all these questions. And then Jesus... Um, is contrasting, I think John's contrasting now with John chapter 4, showing how this woman's interaction with Jesus is in a plane of day, right? And so we have this story where Jesus is traveling. He's he's traveling all over the known uh, land of Israel, and he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And in this case, he's headed to Galilee. But the shortest route to get to Galilee from where he was at was to go through a Samaritan village. And the Samaritan village included a huge group of people called Samaritans. And there was a massive amount of distance culturally, politically, and ethnically between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. And so here's kind of the background. is um, If you know your Old Testament history at all, you'll know that oftentimes Israel, the people of Israel, would be following after God. They'd be worshiping God. And then slowly they would drift. And they would begin to worship after other gods. And what happens is God would use other nations like the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Chaldeans to come and to conquer them, to humble the people of Israel. And then as they were being conquered, they would have to humble themselves and turn back to God. And there's this cycle over and over again. And at one point in time, the people of Israel had been captured and had been brought out of the land. And then these non-Jewish people moved into their land and began to, like, take over the land. And then when the Jewish people moved back, they began to intermarry, and that's how Samaritans came about. And so in the Jewish person's eyes, Samaritans were half-breeds. They didn't represent the true Israel. They held a whole bunch of customs and religious ideas that were not based on the Old Testament. And so there's a lot of distance here. And so Jesus, though chooses to go into this, this city called Sikar to spend some time waiting at a well. It's very fascinating, very, very fascinating. And so in, in John's gospel, though, I want, this is, I think, interesting, is John's gospel makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is fully God. Like all over the place, John goes out of his way to highlight that Jesus is God. He is not only the Son of God, he is God himself. 
And so we see that he is the word that becomes flesh. John chapter 1 verse 14 tells us, And the word became a human being and dwelt for a while among us. He moved into the neighborhood. He was, he was, he was moving into the realm of earth and getting his hands dirty amongst messy human beings. But not only do we see that Jesus is fully divine, we see that he's very human. In fact, the Gospel of John, it shows us that Jesus is at times tired or he's thirsty. He weeps in John's Gospel. I had many friends over the years, when you'd ask them what their favorite Bible verse was, they would point to the Gospel of John and say, say Jesus wept. And they can remember that one. And we were supposed to be impressed. But I think it's interesting. He's tired, he's thirsty, he weeps, and he falls asleep, which is why there's a really great shirt out there that says Jesus took naps. So get off my case. Okay? But his humanity here is, is, is right next to his divinity. And that's what John's gospel does a really good job of showing fully God, fully man. He just carves us out. And, and so we see in this passage, though, Jesus shows up at a well. And it's interesting because he's with his disciples, and every one of his disciples, as they were traveling, they would have had a leather bucket. That's how you would drink water in the ancient world. So like if we were going on a journey, we would have a leather bucket because that's how we would get water when we came up to wells. And so Jesus' disciples show up with him, and they take off, and Jesus doesn't say, hey, leave the bucket. Why does he do that? Why does Jesus not ask for his disciples to leave the bucket. It's because he had a plan. He had a plan. Now you have to understand this well, extremely deep, really, really deep. And at the top of the well, there would be this stone that essentially covered it that had a small hole in it. And what was nice about that, it was a donut-shaped uh, cover, is that you could easily lower rope down and you could get your water. But it also protected um, children from falling into the well. And then secondarily, most of the time, women were getting water at the well. And if you know anything about Middle Eastern culture, what often they would do is they would get that, that, that bucket full of water, and then they would place it on top of their head, and then they would carry it back. But one of the, one of the challenges was getting that full bucket of water onto your head. And so oftentimes, the women would do it together, and they could set those buckets on top of that stone. And so Jesus has a plan, though. Jesus sits down on top of this well... And he has a plan. He has a plan here. And he's going to actually have a conversation with this woman. Listen to what um, Kenneth Bailey says about this. He says, by deliberately sitting on the well without a bucket, Jesus placed himself strategically to be in need of, of whomever appeared with the necessary equipment. Did everybody catch that word strategic? Right? It takes intentionality to engage in the things of the kingdom. You have to be intentional and you have to be strategic. And that's what we see Jesus doing here. So for a few moments here, I just want to flesh this out. We're gonna, there's so much stuff we can look at in John chapter 4. But I want to think about what we can learn from Jesus about engaging in the kingdom here in this passage. And there's, there's really a, a number of things, three things that I want us just to think about for a few minutes here. And the first one is this. Jesus breaks the social taboo and he talks to a woman. And what you have to understand about the cultural distance, again, um, hopefully we all know that it's okay to talk to women, especially if you're a woman. It's okay to talk to other women, right? 
Like, hopefully we know that. But in the, in the ancient world, it was, it was not culturally appropriate. And so even today, I've been in, um, I've been in settings in, in, in Eastern Africa or in parts of Asia, Central Asia, where the women are in one area and the men are in another, and they never interact. They never interact. And, and so we have the same thing happening in Jesus' time, where the men and the women don't ever interact very often. But Jesus doesn't rule like this. What Jesus does is he not only talks to women, he invites them into his band of disciples. And if you study the Gospels, you'll actually see that many of, of Jesus' largest financial supporters were women. They supported his ministry, and they traveled around with him. And you can see that in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. But I think this is interesting, that Jesus breaks the social taboo and talks to a woman. And the question that we might have is, what social taboos exist today that we need to consider breaking? I had this really interesting experience a couple weeks ago where I was in this, like, Bible study setting, and there was a person there talking about, like, well, what would you do if your church had so-and-so people come to it? And it was like we were hearing all the different types of people, okay? So I don't, like, in a room this large, I'm sure there are certain people in here who would find certain segments of society is to be less than desirable, and it'd be really different. So it might be ethnic, it might be gender, it might be sexual orientation, it can be all these different things. And I just, I just was listening to this, and I was actually grieved in my spirit because the person was making me feel like the church should have a wall outside that says, no people allowed unless you're perfect. And so the question was, well, what would you do if so-and-so came to your church and a bunch of religious people left? Think about that question for a minute. What would we do if a bunch of people that don't fit our, our little narratives started coming to our church? What would we do? We would love them. It was like everything inside of me to like, I'll take them all. We'll take all the sinners. You know, like, I just was like, oh my gosh, I just can't do the churchy thing. I just can't. Like, religious, the Pharisaic attitude is the attitude that is unable to recognize our brokenness and only sees the brokenness in others. And let me tell you right now, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, listen, most of society says, I'm not allowed to talk to you because of your gender. Guess what? I'm going to talk to you despite that. So we have to wrestle with that. What are the taboos, the social taboos that are out there that we need to, we need to go beyond those those barriers and those obstacles and have conversations with people. And that's what Jesus, I think, is doing right here. So Jesus breaks the social taboo and he talks to a woman. Application for us is there may be other social taboo, cultural things that we need to consider breaking. The second thing is that Jesus, he ignores the 500-year hostility that had developed between Jews and Samaritans. Now, I cannot make this abundantly clear, the political differences between the Gentiles, the Samaritans, and the Jews was radical. Radical. I mean, these people did not have any common ground. The Samaritans believed that they had one specific spot where God's presence in the temple should be, and the Jewish people said, no, it needs to be here. Okay? And so there's major, major um, differences in, in this in this in this two groups of people, the Samaritans and the Gentiles. And so my question for us is what host, 
hostilities exist now that we need to overcome. And like the obvious elephant in the room, everybody in here is probably thinking about is Giants and Dodgers fans. I'm sure of it, right? Like, oh. But on a serious level, like, the, 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 the demonization that's happened in our culture about other political ideologies that differentiate from our own is a problem in the kingdom of God. See, Jesus just does not, it's like, in fact, we're going to read when the, when the Samaritan woman begins to engage with him just after the text we just read, when she's like, when he says, listen, the person you're living with right now isn't even your husband. Then she turns into a theologian and a political commentator. She's like, well, some Jewish people say that we should worship here. What do you think? And, and the point is, is that Jesus is not afraid of having dialogue with people that are different than him. And I think we need to take that to heart. The third thing is that Jesus humbles himself and he affirms the woman. I mean, this is ministry methodology 101. And I just, the more I've been meditating on this passage, the more I'm like, man, I, I have so much to learn about this. Uh, but let me just say this really quickly. If you are a follower of Jesus, if, if you're in this room and you've said yes to Jesus, you said, yes, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you were raised from the dead. I believe that you have promised to come again. I believe that I've been granted and given eternal life. If you believe those things, here's the rest of the story, is that you have been invited into being a part of his ministry. So all the things that Jesus did, Jesus' ministry, we are, as the church, called to continue those things. We're called to carry that torch forward. So it's not like, oh, Jesus did all these great things and healed people and loved people and welcomed people and, and shared grace with them, and we just need to keep telling them about that. It's that we keep telling them about that, but then we also do all those things too, amen? But that's part of our calling. We are called to continue the ministry of Jesus. And so when we think about being ministers, which is every one of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible says you're a minister, whether you like that title or not. I hate that title. When people call it Pastor Luke, I'm like, just Luke, okay? Point, though, is that we're all called to do these things, amen? Four of you believe. That is so great. I'm so happy. So what are we seeing here that Jesus humbles himself and affirms this woman? What's the methodology? Well, I think is that Jesus' actions here, he's teaching us about how he does mission. He's showing us his methodology. And I think it's relevant in Mexico. It's relevant in China. It's relevant here in Red Blood. What we see is that Jesus totally humbles himself so that he can be served. He, he positions himself at the well, on top of the well, without a bucket for water. He does that in order for ministry to happen. It, it reminds me of, of this one time when I was in Nepal doing ministry. Um, we, were, we were training pastors and, and just seeing what God was doing in this amazing country. And one of the things we did this one day, it was a Saturday, was that we were going to go visit all these different orphanages and these different ministries and, and just spend time um, having an opportunity to share the gospel with them because none of them were really Christian. And so, we, you know, I think we got up early, had breakfast, and got on a, on a bus, and we drove to the first location. And we got there, and they had made a full breakfast for us after we'd already eaten a breakfast. And it was like, I was like, this is awesome. This is great. So I had my second breakfast. 
And then we went to the next location, and then I had my third breakfast. And as we went, I mean, it was all day long. We ended up going like six or seven of these. It's like I had like five lunches that day. You know, and I'm just like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing because I loved the food over there. But at the end of the night, we, we went to the final location, and, I mean, we were done. It was like, there was like seven of us. We had, there was no way we could eat any more food. I mean, it was now physically impossible, right? So we walked in, and it was the largest table I'd ever seen in my life with just full of food. And the guy was like, yeah, we killed a wild boar and cooked it over a stone fire. And I was like, I will find food. I will find room. Like, I'm going to do this. But as we were eating, I just remember thinking, because they were so filled with joy to serve us. They were just filled with joy to serve us. And that was a moment where I think that's similar to what Jesus is, is doing here, is that when he positions himself in a way of being humble and being served, he's allowing that woman in the first century who had this major distance culturally to feel like she had something to offer. She had something to offer. And that's happening in this text as well. So Jesus doesn't start his interaction with the woman by telling her what she needs. He starts his interaction by asking her for something. I I think in many ways, this is really just kind of highlights the importance of relationship. Because I know some people who are really into evangelism. Like I remember when I was probably 18, 19, I was was at this youth group ministry trip, and they were like, we're going to go out and share the gospel. All right, let's go do this. And then they gave us this checklist of all the questions to ask, and every question was basically highlighting that person's um, depravity and how they're going to hell. It's like every question was just designed that way. We went door to door, and it was like, check, 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 check. And guess how many converts we had? Zero, big fat zero, right? And it's not that that going door to door is bad. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying in, in effectiveness, it didn't seem very effective compared to forming relationships with people that are mutually beneficial and are, are, are like real and authentic. And, and I think that's something that we see here with Jesus, is Jesus' opening statement to the woman is, I am weak and I need help, can you help? I am weak, I need some help, can you help? Listen to what D.T. Niles, one of the greatest missiological theologians of all time, says. He says, the only way to build love between two people or two groups of people is to be so related to each other as to stand in need of each other. And, and that's what we see happening, I think, in Jesus' methodology here, is he's elevating this woman's self-worth. Usually it's only those who have who are able to give, right? That's who, who normally does the ministry, is the people who have things. But this causes those who are less fortunate to almost always be in a lower position. And so by Jesus asking this woman to help him, her dignity is affirmed, and Jesus ends up wanting to drink water out of her defiled bucket of water. He's not afraid of that. I'm going to invite the music team to come forward. And I want to spend a little time praying about maybe how this might apply to us in our lives. Um, But here's the thing. This is kind of the point I think that we see in the text. Is that Jesus doesn't mind things that are considered defiled. I mean, just, just think about this for a minute. Let's just wrap your head around this. Is that when Jesus is sitting on this well, he doesn't have his own bucket of water. He sees this woman from this 
culture and community and political ideology and religious background that is absolutely offensive to Jewish people coming towards him. Towards him. He doesn't say, oh, I got to get out of here. He doesn't, he doesn't say, hey, can you go purchase a new bucket? He doesn't say, hey, I need you to clean some things up before I'm able to engage with you. What Jesus says is, can I have some help? And I think what we can get out of this is that Jesus is just not afraid of your crap. He's not afraid of your background. He's not afraid of the defilements that you have. He's not afraid of your past. He's not afraid of your present. What Jesus wants is to have a relationship. He wants to have a relationship. And so I think oftentimes we, we create this huge distance between us and God because we just have this, this feeling that we're not worthy and we, we, we can't really, we can't really attain Him. And but here's the beautiful news, is we aren't worthy. We are not worthy. We are not at all remotely close to worthy. We are broken. We are sinners. We are messy. But the good news of the kingdom is that Jesus doesn't care about those things. He keeps on saying, come to me. All you who are thirsty, come to me, and I will give you waters of living. And then that's the beauty is that we receive that water from Jesus, and then we get to turn around and give it to other people. Let's close your eyes So before we lean into maybe some ways that God might be inviting us to engage, I, I'd like to do this. I just have this sense that there's a number of people in this room that you have yet to make the decision and the first step to say yes to Jesus living water. And you have been living your life, you've been you've been kicking up and down, you've been running into walls, you have just not yet experienced the grace that comes, the mercy that comes, the love that comes from knowing Jesus. And so I would like to give you an opportunity this morning to make that decision. And so if you're here this morning and you would, you would like to receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, as, as your provider of living water, whether you want to do that for the first time or if maybe it's been a while and you have not been centering yourself on Jesus, but you want to get back to that, I'm just going to ask you right now just to stand up because we would love to pray for you. So if you're here this morning and you would like to say yes to Jesus and his kingdom, we're just going to ask you to stand up. First of all, I want to just say, welcome. We're so glad that you're you're making that decision. Um, that's not about us. It's about your relationship with Jesus. And just as a church community, I think I can speak on behalf of all of us to say that we we love you and we want you to experience God's grace. And if it's the first time, that's cool. If it's you know like thirtieth time, that's cool too. And so in a minute, we are going to pray for you. And so I'd love to just encourage you to keep standing. But if you're here this morning and you also 
just have a sense that there's more for you. Like the whole idea of engaging, re-engaging, or being strategic and, and maybe leaning into your, your spiritual life a little bit more intentionally. If there's any, any desire for that as well, I'd love to encourage you to stand up too because I'd love to pray for that as well. So as a church community, we believe in the power of prayer. And what we mean by that is we believe that God answers our, our questions and he answers our petitions. And so um, we also believe that our church is not a church that just watches, but that we get to participate and do. And so what I would like to ask now is if you're sitting around somebody who's standing and you feel comfortable with that, would you just be willing to just put your arms on their shoulder? We'd love to pray for you. And so there's couple people over here. You can totally get up. Randy, you'd better get up. You're a prayer person, so just get up. But if you're part of our ministry team, just feel free to go put your, your arm on, your hand on somebody's shoulder and just begin to pray for them. Just want to make sure everybody has this moment to be able to receive some prayer. So, Father, we pray for each person standing. We ask for your grace and your power and your presence to come right now. And Father, for those who have stood and who have said, yes, I want to receive Jesus, I pray right now, Lord, that you would give them grace, you would give them mercy and give them an awareness of your love. I pray that you would bring healing and affirmation to them. And for those who are standing because they have a sense of being invited into more, would you meet that 